From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Imagine you are 29 years old and have just landed your dream job as the marketing director for a major newspaper when catastrophe strikes. One of your parents has been diagnosed with cancer and you need to leave your job to take care of your family. Many of us will face some very challenging situations in our lives. And while each situation is unique, the key is to recognize that a crisis often leads to opportunity. My guest on today's episode is Ann Zizzo, who started her company in the basement while taking care of her father. From those humble beginnings, Anne has built a very successful company as she's grown Zizzo Group into a global engagement marketing agency. Her decades of experience have given her some unique insight on the entrepreneurial journey, including some great advice for young entrepreneurs, such as look forward, not backward. Surround yourself with great strategic counsel from the get-go. And don't be shy about asking others for help. We also discuss how to best motivate teams of creatives, how you can leverage fear not as a weakness, but as a strength, and the value of relationship building in any business. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. And thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here, Chuck. So, look, I want to start this conversation with uh, something I've learned from talking to a lot of other entrepreneurs and innovators, and and it's really so much of who we are as leaders in our adult life comes from how we grow up. And I know that uh, you were born in Green Bay, and I think you were adopted by a stay-at-home mom and I think an eighth-grade social studies teacher. You've done your homework. Yeah, a little bit. Um, (laughs) But I'm curious, so how do you think, if you look back, how did your childhood experience shape some of the beliefs you have today that have maybe helped make you so successful? Yeah, I mean, I think the couple foundational pieces of growing up is, I mean, I knew my parents loved me. They were always there for me. I had those support systems. Even when I did dumb, stupid things, they always (laughs) looked for the good. Um, And we had two real tent poles around our family dynamic. One was religion and one was education. My parents were very rooted in we didn't have a lot of wealth. I had also two adopted brothers. You know, my dad didn't work in the summers because he was an eighth grade social studies teacher. We had great family times because he wasn't working. Just always kind of having that great surrounding around a support system, um, acceptance, and then knowing no matter what, uh, we were going to go to church on Sunday and they couldn't afford to send me to, you know, a private school. But we'd go to church every Sunday. We were very involved with our church. And then school was really important, and we were expected to get good grades. And not going to college was not an option. Just paying it forward one more layer was then coming to Marquette, which was the first time I was in any kind of Catholic or Jesuit educational environment. And some statistics I was exposed to over my time on the board was that um, kind of pro rata Marquette has a higher percentage base of entrepreneurs in its alumni mix than do non-Catholic Jesuit schools. And so I think there is something that hit me in my, you know, 17 to 21-year-old 
development years around the Jesuit way that sparked something in me. Where do you think that idea of being wanting to do something on your own comes from? I mean, there's not a lot of people that actually have this strong desire, or even if they have the desire, they don't have the will or whatever it takes to go do it. Is there something you think that as you were growing up, it gave you this confidence to feel like you could do anything you wanted to do? I mean, I think I always just was confident being adopted. I mean, the way my parents handled that, it was no surprises. Like, I don't ever remember not knowing I was adopted. You know, you read these stories or you see the Jerry Springer moments or whatever where people find out they're adopted and it translates back to lack of belonging, you know, all these all these emotions. And, and uh, one of my brothers actually feels that way. But for me, I just, no, I was, I'm the oldest. I'm the only girl. I just never felt any doubt about it. I looked at, as I raised my own children, and as they're now becoming successful working adults, you know, I just tried to always let them know there's, there's, you know, no reward if you don't take risk. You know, the classic 80-20 rule, you're going to screw up. There's going to be some downtimes, but by and large, you're a good guy. You know? <laughs> and I feel like I was just raised the same way. It's okay to fall down. It's, it's more about what you do to get up than it is about what made you fall down. So at age 29, you land your dream job as the marketing director for the Journal Sentinel. And then a couple months into the job, your dad's diagnosed with cancer. And so the story I read is you, you quit your dream job to go care for your dad. Yeah. What was that experience like? It was really a no-brainer. Like, I was not going to let my dad down. And I didn't want to let my employer down. And I learned really quickly that I could not manage, at the time, the marketing department at the Journal was about 69 people. It was a big department. And I couldn't do what I needed to do there and do what I needed to do with my family. And so, um, and you know what? It was one of these things where I went to the leadership, and at the time, Keith Spohr was the president and publisher. And I went to the exec team, and I just said, hey, you know, I got to do what I got to do here. And as luck may have it, or as things usually, you know, if you do the right thing, things turn out, they asked me to stay on board as a consultant while I managed and work from home in the hospitals, while my father's health situation resolved itself, which ultimately he passed away about a year later. But I do know that leaving my job and taking care of him, I got him in some clinical trials and was able to get him to the clinical trials. And it absolutely extended his life, gave him better quality of life, gave us the opportunity to go to our family cottage that we rented every year since we were little kids one last time. And he had a great week and then he had to go back for treatment on that Friday, which didn't go so well. But I mean, we just had that. That was the gift in it all was uh, that vacation and that time. And so anyway, the Journal Sentinel came to me and they put me on a healthy retainer. And, you know, that gave me the ability to stay um, involved with them. Um, but what happened at the same time was I started connecting with other people I had done business with over my eight years of professional history here in Milwaukee and throughout the Midwest. And Long story short was people trusted me because of the way I did business with them in those earlier years. And end of that year, I had seven people working in my basement. We had done about $7 million in sales. And, you know, I, I was able to help take care of my dad. So it worked out. So for a lot of people, there are these moments where they have to make some decision. And, and it, if they look back, they realize it kind of changed the trajectory. And so do you wonder 
that if you stayed on that traditional career track, you know, you stayed in the Journal Sentinel, you kind of were working up the ladder, you're the marketing director. Mm -hmm. Do you wonder if there wasn't for that moment with your dad that you would have ended up on the same path? Did it did it kind of force you out of kind of your boundary zone and and kind of give you a reason to take the risk to end up starting your own business? Or did, did it not work that way for you? I am not meant to be employed. <laughs> I am not employable. <laughs> I was in, uh, you know, one of these YPL groups and these, you know, uh, one of the guys in my group had uh, one of these kind of industrial uh, psychiatry testing companies. Right. And so we all anonymously subjected ourselves to the 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 tests and the questionnaires and, and that kind of thing. And um, mine came back just basically saying, this is a good, honest person she will be a great employee she will not conform she <laughs> she'll bend the rules but not in an illegal or immoral or unethical way and she'll get the job done but you know I was just not I bought what I, I was not cut out for that it's something else that forced me to um, it forced the moment but I cannot believe that I would have gone on in a corporate environment um, it frustrated me. And actually, as I've been able to design my company, you know, because I was 29 when I started. So let's face it, I didn't have a long runway of, you know, corporate um, immersion. Now my immersion comes, you know, we sell at CEO level. I go in and I meet with the CEOs of banks and healthcare systems and media properties and, you know, insurance companies and, you know, sports teams and all of our client base. But um, then I go and get out <laughs> and I kind of skip through the parking lot and I'm like, woo. I get to go back to my world. Um, but as I've been able to design the company, I mean, some of my major decisions around culture, structure, um, and so on have been informed more by things I didn't like when I worked for other people than what I did. It's a great description. And, and it brings me to a question where I we found that early in your career, you were quoted as saying that uh, you didn't consider yourself an entrepreneur, but rather as a marketing person who is doing what I needed to do to balance my family life and earn some income at the same time. But you've just described what most people would call a very entrepreneurial mindset. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur today? I do. I did not then. Whenever that was that I made that quote, I was probably like 34 <laughs> and you know, reeling from just a couple of years after my dad's passing and trying to build a business to make it past five years, you know, to make sure that I made it over that milestone. So what, what was it that made you feel comfortable to put your, consider yourself as an entrepreneur? You know, when you're, when you're an entrepreneur and you don't have partners and you, um, you, you, I learned over time that I could start kind of driving opportunities. I didn't have to wait for them all to come to me. And what now I like is that I get to work more on my businesses than in them. And I am, what keeps me going is, I mean, I love to work. I've been working since I was like in eighth grade when I had a paper route, so I'm a worker. But um, I just love to find the next thing, you know? And that is, so I'm a marketing person. And when clients need me to be involved with marketing, strategy. I, I do that. I mean, I can do that. That's what I do. But I like to spend my time more on developing new channels of and new playgrounds that I get to um, sit in the sandboxes in. <laughs> so 
as you look back over a, what has been a very successful career, what would you put out as your biggest failure so far? I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I've had a lot of big failures. I'm not trying to say that in any kind of egotistical way. I, I don't ever. Failure is not really a concept or a word or a thing that I like I don't look at things that way. I look at like something that maybe didn't go exactly the way I wanted it to go as uh, a learning, as a building block, as a lesson. Sometimes you learn more from the things that go wrong than what goes right because we expect everything to go right, right? So I actually think you probably learn more you do for when things go wrong. Yeah, so I don't at the end of the day, in what I do, you know, I, I chair the quality committee for Freighter Hospital. And I have a national healthcare marketing practice. I work with healthcare systems from pretty much New York to San Francisco. So learning a lot about that industry. And I mean, those people are saving lives. Those people are changing lives. I'm, my company, and I take this very personally, I mean, I'm affecting the lives of the customers that are clients serve certainly the employees that work there and you know what what we do to bring revenue into Milwaukee so they can buy better homes send their kids to college go on vacations you know I take that responsibility very seriously um, but if you look at what we do in in marketing um, you know it's different than being you know the head of cardiac at a academic medical center right so I'm not trying to say that what we do is not important. It is important. What we do at ZG and what I do, I believe it's important. But I don't, the failure for me is not like a life and death situation. So what we have learned, Anne, in talking to many people is that your answer that it's a learning opportunity and that you look at it differently it's actually one of the most critical aspects of people that are going to pursue hmm. a career as an innovator or an entrepreneur. Because if, you, if you're able to look at things that way, it expands your risk profile. You're more comfortable trying things others wouldn't. And when you do that, it expands what's possible. And so it's actually, your answer is very common to what we've heard and it's actually oh, a theme God. no it's like a therapy session no 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 it's actually it's an incredibly <laughs> it is a theme that's emerging that has been really powerful and what's interesting is you know what we're trying to get at is so why is it and that you don't even think about it but that's just that comes naturally to you but so many people that get stuck they spend a huge percentage of their time trying to avoid failure and you don't even think about it and i think that those two mindsets, that belief system that you start with has a tremendously uh, big impact on which path you're able to go down. So you have a successful business, but let's say tomorrow, for some reason, you're not running that business, uh -huh. but you still got all this energy. So you said you're going to keep doing things. So you're going to start a new type of marketing company to transform the industry. And I know you just reimagine your own company, but now it's a startup, right? Just you, you get to pick a couple people. What is the problem or the opportunity when it applies to your business that you think is somewhat untapped and could be better addressed by coming at it from a completely different way? I mean, I try to I'd like to try to find I try to find a way to 
um, I've got a couple of products in my company, um, which are very successful. They're customized, but they're products. And I'd figure out a way to, from a marketing firm perspective, offer more products and ways that you could, we could, um, more risk share, reward share with our clients based on the investments that we're mutually making in each other's companies. Like that model could get um, created because it doesn't really, it's not really in existence right now. And what would happen, so by risk sharing and, and making it, what what dynamic would you create that would be, you know, what problem would you be solving that isn't solved by the traditional model today? Well, it would it would create more of a true partnership with the a service firm like ours and the client, um, where you know, like when when you are working with accounting counsel or legal counsel, you're more lockstep, arm in arm. You might not get that clean audit, you might not get that not guilty verdict, but you are arm in arm, side by side, marching down that runway together. And there might be a little bit of finger pointing, but, you know, as a general rule, not. Whereas um, if, if corporations could look at marketing um, and those partners as just that, um, I mean, we don't get to bill every hour of our time. We are investing in a relationship in a client's business, even when we're not controlling what they go to market with. Um, but we're you know, if we both have skin in the game, then we probably would both reap greater reward, you know, get out of that kind of hourly capped billing model into, and and I think that kind of um, way would drive um, alignment with entrepreneurial company like ours and entrepreneurial corporations, you know? So let's just take that one step further. So let's say a company approached you then and said, hey, um, We'd like to have you work with us. We'd like to do it completely at risk, and you just get a percentage of whatever. If this works, you get a percentage of it, and if it doesn't work, you get nothing. Mm -hmm. Would you consider it? Well, the devil's in the details, right? What is the it, and who defines what works? And, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if it could be like, you know, I think it would be an interesting, I think that I think it would be a winning, there would be a huge upside. I think for a company like ours, it would take us out of kind of a capitated billing system, budget-driven, bottom line budget billing, you know, and and financial relationship into an entrepreneurial one. Um, but again, the devil's in the details. It's it's okay. So what's really going to work, you know? So well, so we actually in the legal side when we did patent litigation, it's incredibly expensive, and there are actually firms that will do it. Essentially, um, they get a percentage of what you win, and if they don't win. They get a very small fee, but basically they're not even covering all their costs. Yep. And it seems like a great idea, and it is, except that – so you get to that moment, and you decide we're going to settle the case. And you realize that the two parties, while your metrics that you agreed to measure are still there, there's actually other metrics that yeah. <laughs> affect the rest of their business. Yep. And so it gets very tricky to how do you – because you have – a common set of interests and you have uncommon yep. interests yep. and those kind of get in conflict, but it's still an interesting model. So switching gears on the people topic, you were quoted as saying there's two types of people. The Mac people are the creatives and the PC people are the numbers people, the researchers and that sort of thing. So how is a CEO 
Do you find the right balance between the two? Well, it's around what the clients need, right? Um, so again, this is something that's really changing right now as we're looking at engagement marketing and social content and everything digital and so on. But I mean, really, the people who do digital buying, PPC, SEO, all that, that's all like they're math wizards. It's all algorithms and, you know, all of that stuff. Um so I guess we still, but those guys are working on Macs. So they actually, <laughs> they're changing that a little bit. Actually, even most of our former PC people um, are working on Macs. But um, so, you know, that composition really reflects, again, the marketplace and what the client demands are and so on. Um, um, but there's, but but the people who are more of the creatives and, and the and creative meaning art, copy, content, uh, dev, user experience, you know, that, you know, social content, that whole kind of those kinds of talent. Um, it's not like they really, they're not fine artists. They're not like setting stuff up at like craft fairs, trying to sell their jewelry and their portraits. Well, maybe some of them are doing that, but you know, on the side <laughs> as a hobby, but I mean, they want to create measurable results for clients. So they have made a choice to work in an agency, um, not in a corporate marketing environment and not as freelancers. Um, and they want and appreciate having that kind of PC research-based um, um, influence. And I mean, it's called a creative brief and we put together and those are the boundaries that they need to adhere to, to create creative. That's going to ultimately get our clients measurable results. And they get the dashboard reports every month, just like the client does. Um, so they can see if the stuff that they're doing is that, that they're creating is having impact. Like, like we train people and the people that work there know that, what we are doing and their success and their raises and their salaries and their bonuses and all that stuff is going to track back to client satisfaction, which is largely driven by numbers and data and measurable results. So they want that. They want that. Finding the right people is critical to building any team around mm -hmm. the problem you're trying to solve. So is there something, because my sense is, is that even though, you know, the Mac PC people, it, there's two different types of work they do. My sense is most people have to be comfortable with the creative side to some extent to want to work oh, in an agency. Absolutely. So when you're sitting down, is there something when you meet someone that wants to come work for your firm that you're looking for, you ask them to try to get at, not what does their resume say, but how are they really wired? Is there anything you're looking for in that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get that close to a lot of the hiring anymore, but um, I know that the people who are there that are successful and you used this word earlier, it's about curiosity. And I always encourage our VPs and, and managers to really, yeah, they have to have a good book. Yeah, they have to have good references. Yeah, they have to have the right kind of experience. Yeah, they need to have a good personality. But are they curious? And, um, you know, back when I was on the client side of things before I started a firm, um, and one of the things that made me good as an account executive when I worked in firm marketing firms before I started my firm was, you know, you're driving down the road and you see a billboard and you're like, for a competitor, you're like, why are they saying that? Or what are they doing? Or could they say that? Or geez, that looks a little bit like something we came up with. Or, you know, 
what about if we did this? Or what if I just asked that person how their kid did in their baseball game last night? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Because it is about the people. And if you are curious about the industry, about best practices, about our trades, about our clients, about their products, about their services, about their families, about their pain points, about their happinesses. That's going to make us better people for our clients to interact with that they're going to you know, create long-term relationships with. And if there is a mistake, if there is a bad couple months of results, if something got screwed up, people are... People want to be good people, you know, and if they if that relationships is are there, they're going to forgive a stumble. It helps us eliminate the bad vibe that happens with failure. Right. So that becomes our safety net. So do you think the creative idea that you're trying to pursue, is it more about the process your team follows or the mindset they have before they use the process? It comes from the mindset because if you don't have the mindset, the process doesn't matter. You're not going to adhere to even, <laughs> you know, nobody adheres to, you know, specific. The process is not a straight line. So, but the, the bell curve on either side of the line is going to be significantly reduced if, if they have a mind frame that they can accept that process. And there has to be a process um, because the client's need to have that process. I mean, that's what creates alignment with a company like ours and the client is an understanding of the process of milestone moments of, you know, kind of lean manufacturing, if you will, of a creative idea and um, the consequences of going back and changing something after a milestone moment or a decision, you know, that lockdown moment in the iterative process has been had. So um, everybody builds towards those milestones, and that's kind of what brings you together. Like in our, our world, and that's our conveyor belt, do you know what I mean, yep. to, to bring the manufacturing aspect of what we do together. So when I was interviewing Mike Lovell, he had built a, a class prior to coming to Marquette where they actually had an innovation lab. And at one point, they brought in a behavioral psychologist, and they actually would give these different teams problems at the start of the semester. And and over the semester, they would work on solving a problem. And they actually did these in labs where they could actually watch all their behaviors. And one of the things he learned that was quite unexpected was that if you build a prototype too early, you only get iterative ideas because once there's a physical representation of an idea people tend to only iterate off Mm -hmm. that one variation Mm -hmm. and that what he learned is that what was critical to the process is to hold people from going making that choice too early and actually stay creative so i'm curious because you have milestones and the client's expecting things to happen at a certain time but i would imagine that there's usually a couple good ideas and you put one out there and how do you not avoid getting stuck with because of the milestone with that one idea and just iterating off it and not being able to go back and test idea two or three? We don't present just one idea. So, again, it's a funnel. So when we're – let's just take a logo design. Let's just say we're, do, we're rebranding something. You're doing a logo. And you've done everything up to get to the point where you're at the logo. We're, we'll probably have 20 different designs. We'll maybe boil it down to three or four, whatever, but let's just say it's three, each which represents different kind of brand platforms, different 
emotional and functional um, um, aspects of what that brand or marketing campaign is going to be. So um, once you choose that, so let's say we show three. What happens is we start create a controlled environment where we're not putting one out there and the, some CEO is going to be wondering, oh, what are the other 10 things it could have been? It's like, here's three different ways we could go. Here's how it all answers back to the research. Here's what it might look like as we start paying it forward loosely. Um, and what happens in that milestone moment is a clear decision to go with option one. Like to see a little bit of option two worked into option one, you know, whatever that discussion is. But it's a way that we can invite non-creative people, statistical, analytical <laughs> people into a process where ultimately at the end of the day, when they're selling it through their company, they have to be comfortable with it or we're going to fail. You know, so if their voice is in the process and they're helping to create that product, the visual, the visible manifestation of marketing, they're going to be more comfortable with it if they're helping us build it along the way. So, and you've been quoted as saying that you need your employees to be fearless, curious, come up with new ideas and dig deep into research. Uh -huh. And you've also said that fearless is not reckless. Fearless is empowering. What I always told people at Cree I wanted was I wanted people that were unafraid of failure, but yet they were unwilling to fail. Uh-huh. So when you meet people and whether you're interviewing them or not, or you're just, you know, the different people in the firm and you're wanting the ones that could be the next leaders, yeah. how do you evaluate whether that's someone thinks that way or not when you're talking to them? What do you look for? <sighs> well, you know, that's something that just not, that's not one conversation, right? <laughs> that's um, kind of a melting to come up with that decision or that judgment or that understanding that that's the composition of that person. It's kind of a combination of uh, track record and working with them. Um, you know, just how are they out of the workplace? You know, <laughs> what are they like? What are they doing in the community? What are they? What do they care about? Um, I'm saying this under the guise of you know leaders in the company and people that I'm going to pass on to. Um, how are they as um, you know? with their significant others, their partners, their spouses, their families, um, to one another. I mean, it's, it's all of those things. And, and, and the main, but the main tentpole for us is like, I, I, for me, it goes more back to curiosity. It's like, what are they doing to make sure we are getting results for clients and caring about clients? I mean, that's really the tentpole that they're there to organize around, right? And so um, whether that be, you know, from a systems and process perspective, we need to buy new stuff to do a better job to get that done for clients and, and researching it and sort of says, hey, you should check this out, you know, like <laughs> to their boss or to me, you know, like what are they doing to help us um, continue to evolve the composition of our company to be relevant and on the front end of it, you know? Mm. Um I think one thing I found that fearlessness, you know, that came, that's something that I started really understanding was important. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I'm probably 15, 18 years ago. That was like, this is, that was something I felt happening in me. My company's 25 years old. So I felt that happening to me and I could kind of articulate it then. And um, 
so I that was we rebranded ourselves. We look at our core values. Fearlessness came up as being something that was really important. We all settled on that. The kind of top two layers of leadership in the company. And then next thing you know, like I started seeing that be like in like the windows of TJ Maxx. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it, it kind of became something that, you know, got overused really quickly. Kind of like the word innovation. Yeah, I was thinking that as I was just talking. Um, but it is, it's more about, it's more about, for me, it all comes back to just encouraging people to find the freedom and the empowerment that comes with being entrepreneurial. And, and to your point, it's, it, you can, there's different ways to be comfortable with that, you know? So let's, let's just take that one level down. So, you know, what you're talking about is people's willingness to take risk, but you run a business and you have KPIs and metrics and clients. So how do you get people comfortable taking risk when almost all their metrics are about success? Oh, well, we make the risk, you know, if there's something that didn't go totally as planned, we make that a success that we even tried, you know, again, it's not like we're, it's not like it's in our world, in our environment, if somebody takes a risk around something, it probably, um, the net effect is it probably ended up with other hours that otherwise would have been billable that we couldn't bill that we have to eat it. I mean, that's probably what the net effect is. No client, because we have great client relationships, we have all that stuff handled, is gonna fault us for bringing an idea to them that they choose not to move forward with if they don't have to pay for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, how so, about an idea though that you convince a client to try, or one of your team yeah. does, and it bombs, like it doesn't work at all, and the metrics are bad. Yeah. I My sense is you want that person not to be afraid to try in the future, but. My guess is there's a lot of negative metric-related feedback. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, that's why we have that iterative process where the client's baked into every decision that we're making. We don't get to run around carte blanche and just do what we want to do. I mean, we really have very few times where we're ever left hanging like that because of the way that we're working with the clients to help us make a lot of those decisions. So, Anne, I want to end with a question of really what advice do you have for people that are out there looking to start their own business, to innovate, to become entrepreneurs. What would you tell them? How should they think about this? I'd tell them they can do it. (laughs) Um, I'd look forward, not backward. I'd um, surround yourselves with really good strategic counsel, you know, from the get-go, your bank, your accountants, your lawyers, I mean, basic things. Um, And I'd... I guess the other thing I would encourage people to do is just don't be shy about asking others for help. Um, Yeah, I guess those would be the three things I would think of. Well, that is great advice. So I want to thank you for spending time with me today. It has been super fun to hear your story. Uh, You you have some great insight for people. And, you know, I think it's just amazing when people get to hear how you take this idea that's comes about not necessarily planned, you know, dealing whether doing the right thing to go be with your dad starts you down a path of realizing a dream that was probably there anyways, but it set you on a path. And I just think it's so awesome to hear those stories. And thanks for all the stuff you do, not just in your business, but here in Milwaukee. Uh, Glad to do it. It's It's great to have you as part of the community. So thanks and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Chuck.
Thanks to Anne Zizzo for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing some great insight from her impressive career. If you're looking to innovate, I would encourage you to take Anne's advice and remember to look forward, not backward, and don't be shy about asking others for help. Anne's story also highlights the fact that with the right mindset, you can see the opportunities that are often hidden in crisis. As John F. Kennedy said during a speech in 1959, the Chinese used two brush strokes to write the word crisis. One brush stroke stands for danger, the other for opportunity. In a crisis, be aware of the danger, but recognize the opportunity. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Let us know if there's a guest you'd like us to have on the podcast or an innovation topic you'd like us to take on. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.